Welcome to NVC Life. I'm Rochelle Lamb, veteran NVC trainer and relationship coach, helping listeners navigate interpersonal conflict and ground more deeply into relational living. Greetings, fellow humans. Given that this is the time of year when students are busying themselves preparing for back to school and parents are buying notebooks and pencil cases, etc. for we ones to go back to school, I thought it was fitting for me to focus on education. Marshall Rosenberg, in I think almost every workshop that I attended, would recommend the work of John Taylor Gatto. Specifically, he would recommend the book, Dumbing Us Down, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Schooling. John Taylor Gatto was an education activist, teacher, author. He taught in public schools for 30 years and then spent another 20 years as a world-renowned speaker, giving over 1,500 speeches in nine countries. And I was fortunate enough to attend one of his talks at the University of Victoria. Uh, This would be some 20 years ago when his book, Dumbing Us Down, had first come out. And I read the book and I was very intrigued. And in fact, I read the book, I believe, before I even met Marshall. In any event, Gatto was named New York City Teacher of the Year in 1989-1990 and again in 1991. And also in 1991, he was named the New York State Teacher of the Year. Gatto's books include Dumbing Us Down, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Schooling, The Underground History of American Education, and Weapons of Mass Instruction. I will include links in the show notes for these books. Following his death in 2018 at age 82, Writer Brittany Hunter wrote a piece for the Foundation for Economic Education, and she wrote the following. I'm just going to quote a few pieces. Over the course of his career, Gatto was recognized by other educators for the rapport he had built with his students. While other teachers were spending much of their day on behavioral management issues, Gatto's students were actively engaged in his lectures and genuinely excited about learning. When faculty members would come to him seeking advice, his prescription was simple. Treat your students the same way you treat anyone else. Later in the article, she makes reference to his letter of resignation submitted after 20 years of teaching. And this letter was published by the Wall Street Journal in July 1991 as an op-ed. And I thought I would take the opportunity to read that for you. It was very thought-provoking. It's titled, I Quit, I Think. I've taught public school for 26 years, but I just can't do it anymore. For years, I asked the local school board and superintendent to let me teach a curriculum that doesn't hurt kids, but they had other fish to fry. So I'm going to quit, I think. I've come slowly to understand what it is I really teach a curriculum of confusion, class position, arbitrary justice, vulgarity, rudeness, disrespect for privacy, indifference to quality, and utter dependency. I teach how to fit into a world I don't want to live in. I just can't do it anymore. I can't train children to wait to be told what to do. I can't train children. 
I can't train people to drop what they are doing when a bell sounds. I can't persuade children to feel some justice in their class placement when there isn't any. And I can't persuade children to believe teachers have valuable secrets they can acquire by becoming our disciples. That isn't true. Government schooling is the most radical adventure in history. It kills the family by monopolizing the best times of childhood and by teaching disrespect for home and parents. An exaggeration? Hardly. Parents aren't meant to participate in our form of schooling. Rhetoric to the contrary. My orders as school teacher are to make children fit an animal training system, not to help each find his or her personal path. The whole blueprint of school procedure is Egyptian, not Greek or Roman. It grows from the faith that human value is a scarce thing represented symbolically by the narrow peak of a pyramid. The idea passed into American history through the Puritans. It found its scientific presentation in the bell curve, along which talent supposedly apportions itself by some iron law of biology. It's a religious idea. And school is its church. New York City hires me to be a priest. I offer rituals to keep hearsay at bay. I provide documentation to justify the heavenly pyramid. Socrates foresaw that if teaching became a formal profession, something like this would happen. Professional interest is best served by making what is easy to do seem hard, by subordinating laity to priesthood. School has become too vital a jobs project contract giver and protector of the social order to allow itself to be reformed. It has political allies to guard its marches. That's why reforms come and go without changing much. Even reformers can't imagine school much different. David learns to read at age four, Rachel at age nine. In normal development, when both are 13, you can't tell which one learned first. The five-year spread means nothing at all, but in school, I will label Rachel learning disabled and slow David down a bit too. For a paycheck, I adjust David to depend on me to tell him when to go and stop. He won't outgrow that dependency. I identify Rachel as discount merchandise, special education. After a few months, she'll be locked into her place forever. In 26 years of teaching rich kids and poor, I almost never met a learning disabled child, hardly ever met a gifted and talented one either. Like all school categories, these are sacred myths created by the human imagination. They derive from questionable values we never examine because they preserve the temple of schooling. That's the secret behind short answer tests, bells, uniform time blocks, age grading, standardization, and all the rest of the school religion punishing our nation. There isn't a right way to become educated. There are as many ways as fingerprints. We don't need state-certified teachers to make education happen. That probably guarantees it won't. How much more evidence is necessary? Good schools don't need more money or a longer year. They need real free market choices, variety that speaks to every need and runs risks. We don't need a national curriculum or national testing either. Both initiatives arise from ignorance of how people learn or deliberate indifference to it. I can't teach this way any longer. If you hear of a job where I don't have to hurt kids to make a living, let me know. Come fall, I'll be looking for work, I think. So there it is, John Taylor Gatto's biting resignation. It does 
make people think. I At least I hope it does. I, of course, I recognize in reading something like this that if you are a teacher, if you are a parent, the hackles could be going up. You could be thinking, surely he's not talking about me and defending yourself. Now, one of the things I also read in John Taylor Gatto's book was how much admiration and respect, in fact, that he had for teachers. So he was never condemning teachers. He was condemning the system. And he recognized that teachers worked long, hard hours and were incredibly fine people and deeply devoted to their craft, which he asserted they were not really permitted to do. Let's return to Brittany Hunter's article, which she wrote in 2018. On October 25th, after a long battle with health issues, Gatto departed this world at 82 years old, survived by his loving wife and two children. In addition to his family, he left behind a legacy that inspired thousands of people to challenge the premise on which our education system was built and to protect a child's right to a real education built on actual experience rather than government-sanctioned texts. So as we honor the life of this great man, I leave you with a few of Gatto's most inspirational quotes. And here I will read these quotes to you. School is a 12-year jail sentence where bad habits are the only curriculum truly learned. I teach school and win awards by doing it. I should know. It is absurd and anti-life to be part of a system that compels you to sit in confinement with people of exactly the same age and social class. That system effectively cuts you off from the immense diversity of life and the synergy of variety. Indeed, it cuts you off from your own past and future, sealing you in a continuous present, much the same way television does. It is absurd and anti-life to move from cell to cell at the sound of a gong for every day of your natural youth in an institution that allows you no privacy and even follows you into the sanctuary of your home, demanding that you do its homework. How will they learn to read, you ask? And my answer is, remember the lessons of Massachusetts. When children are given whole lives instead of age-graded ones in cell blocks, they learn to read, write, and do arithmetic with ease, if those things make sense in the kind of life that unfolds around them. Last quote here, independent study, community service, adventures, and experience, large doses of privacy and solitude, a thousand different apprenticeships, the one-day variety or longer, these are powerful, cheap, and effective ways to start a real reform of schooling, but no large-scale reform is ever going to work to repair our damaged children and our damaged society until we force open the idea of school to include family as the main engine of education. If we use schooling to break children away from parents, and make no mistake, that has been the central function of school since John Cotton announced it as the purpose of the Bay Colony Schools in 1650, and Horace Mann announced it as the purpose of Massachusetts School in 1850. We're going to continue to have the horror show we have right now. Whatever an education is, it should make you a unique individual, not a conformist. It should furnish you with an original spirit with which to tackle the big challenges. It should allow you to find values, which will be your roadmap throughout life. It should make you spiritually rich, a person who loves whatever you are doing, 
wherever you are, whomever you are with. It should teach you what is important, how to live, and how to die. I find those to be incredibly moving words and words that are well worth returning to over and over again as we prepare our children to go back to school. I want to finish with something that I remember Marshall Rosenberg saying was that he had found in his own work in the education system, which was something he was very committed to doing, and he saw good reason to to change how schools operated. I'm not sure how successful all of that has been. And again, I want to say here that these are generalizations that I'm making. I recognize that there are independent schools and there are people who are working very hard to make positive changes in the education system. So <laughs> please please consider that uh, I, I know you're out there. One of the things Marshall said was that he wrote a song and it was called, I Wonder Why My Dog Won't Eat Green Jello. And it was based on wonder itself. What he was wondering is what happened to wonder because he found that young children were especially eager, enthusiastic, willing to wonder, but that the longer someone was in a school system, the less able there were to wonder. I suppose the more able they were to have the right answers, but wonder is the casualty of right answers. And who knows? I, I don't even think they're right answers. Of course, as Gatto says, we're teaching people things that we decide or a small group of people decide without really checking. Is that what's worth knowing? Marshall used to ask that question. What is worth knowing? I leave you with that. If you are returning to school or preparing children to go back to school, I hope your learning will be useful, life-enriching, and deepen you as a human. Thank you for tuning into NBC Life. For future episodes, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube. For free resources or to book a private session with me, head over to rochellelam.com. Until the next time, stay sane, grateful, and generous.